some people you can just uh, are just so amazed by. They have amazing energy, and that is Michael Ast. He is the Chief Medical Innovation Officer for Hospital for Special Surgery. He's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in joint reconstruction. I mean, he is such an infectious personality. You just can't help but listen and want to hear what he has to say. He has really skyrocketed in his career. He's only been in practice for about 10 years or so, but literally is now in, in uh, practice at HSS, uh, where he's developed uh, and become uh, the chief medical officer for the Innovation Center, which really uh, is remarkable for the resources that it provides for, uh, for clinicians that are looking to innovate, whether it's technology, technique, medical device, et cetera. I really, really enjoyed this episode. He has so much to share for our younger orthopedic uh, surgeons out there that are developing a practice. You're going to love it. Hashtag follow the fro. This episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by Trackable Med. You work like crazy, but you make less every year. You feel busy, but it's not with the procedures you want. The problem is you rely on referrals, which are out of your control. Maybe you've tried advertising, maybe a new website, but there are always questions. Is it working? Am I wasting money? How can you get more of the patients you want on purpose? Trackable Med. Trackable Med was born out of a frustration with an advertising industry riddled with a lack of accountability to actual outcomes. With Trackable Med, it's all about the results defined as something you can deposit into a bank account. Results are achieved through an approach rooted in neuroscience, advertising, web design, and even appointment setting patient engagement solutions. Everything is designed with purpose towards your goal and all with no contracts. Find out if accelerating patient demand for your practice with Trackable Med is a good fit for you. Visit trackablemed.com and click on free consultation. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best of the orthopedic space. I am super excited for today's episode. We have Dr. Michael Ast, who's the chief medical innovation officer at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in joint reconstruction. Michael, it is a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Scott. So, so excited to finally be in the master bedroom closet. <laughs> welcome dude and as we were saying as we're getting on I, I hope we're not going to disappoint our listeners but it's time to step it up man we're moving out of the master bedroom closet studio we're heading down to the peloton basement in the workout room we've carved out a new spot and uh it is it's just time to get out of the closet what can we say also sounds like it's time for a new sponsor if we're going down to the peloton room you know what i mean I've been working on that since we started a year and a half ago. We haven't got through yet. The stock's hopefully on the way back up. Maybe they'll be looking for sponsors. We'll see. But no, in all seriousness, look, Mike, I'm really excited to have you on. You know, we've uh, we've crossed paths a lot. We've now actually met each other, not just virtually, but in person. And I've just been, I've been uh, such an admirer of yours and, and your passion for education and all of the things that you're doing outside of just clinical practice. But let's start where, where it all began. I believe you're a Staten Island dude. Is that correct? That is correct. Although I try not to let too many people find out about that. Now, you know, Staten Island is a funny place. Most people either live there and then never, ever leave, 
or they leave and they never go back. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I'm one of the few who left and then go back. My whole family's still there. Staten Island's a very, a very unique, but very cool place. I mean, I think of police officers and firefighters and nurses. I mean, real sort of blue collar people that, uh, and so I, and so I have a, my brother's a cop and my sister's a nurse. Well, there you go. So we, we nailed it pretty good. It was a huge flood too. Wasn't there like not too long ago, like well, there, maybe 10 years ago or yeah, two hurricanes took it out. So hurricane Irene and then hurricane Sandy and my sister lost her house in both of those floods. Mm. So uh, it's, it's been, you know, this, the island's actually been through a lot and a huge change. I mean, when I, when I got there, it was nothing like it is now. Now it's, it's crowded and crazy and, you know, people on Saturday Night Live. So it's a, it's a very different place than when I was growing up there, you know, 35, 40 years ago. That's awesome. So, all right. So look, you're, you're, you're in that blue collar Staten Island area. Is there a doctor in there somewhere that's, that's stimulating your thought or process to be a doctor? Where'd that come from? Yeah. I mean, I was, so I was a gymnast my whole life. So I was, I started gymnastics at age five and did it all through college. And I, you know, if you know anything about the sport of gymnastics, you take care of athletes, you know, they get hurt all the time and getting hurt was like my most famous, basically my most favorite hobby. And so along the way, I met several orthopedic surgeons, usually for a cast or an evaluation or a set of crutches for this or that. And, uh, you know, between, uh, Benamo and Mark Sherman, and, and a couple of the other ones and Mark's son, Seth, who I now know professionally because he trained at HSS and is the chief of sports out at Stanford. But uh, his dad took care of me a million times growing up and kind of got me basically going in the direction of, of medicine in general, because he told me that to do the cool job he had, I had to become a doctor. So that's kind of the way I went. Oh, I love it. There's so many good stories in there. So first and foremost, I mean, there's no question that gymnastics is organized child abuse. I mean, you know, literally your parents take you to this event, you're doing way too much stuff, your repetitive motion and movement disorders, you're jumping around, you're hurting things. But at the end of the day, you know, when you excel and you become great, and obviously, you know, we'll talk about your experience as a gymnast at Temple. Uh, but, you know, just love to hear that you sort of progressed and pushed through. And then, you know, I just love, we love the shout outs, you know, Seth Sherman's going to be on uh, not too long, another just amazing rising star of an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, he does actually take care of his patients, I think three or four days a week, the rest of three or four days out of the year. I think the rest of the time he's traveling for international symposiums, but, uh, and then we were thinking about having he and his dad on together, to be honest, be we, great. Still, we still may try to pull that off. We'll see if we can keep Seth we have we may have to confiscate his passport to be able to do that, but we'll uh, we'll see if we can make that work out. So, all right. So you're you're a gymnast. You're breaking stuff, and you're still plodding along, and you're doing great. You're you know you're going to do the whole national thing, and 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 so you you get to Temple. You're 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 a gymnast. I'm assuming you have a scholarship. You're a Division One athlete there, and you know tell us about that experience as a Division One athlete at Temple, competing at the highest level as a gymnast. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I credit it all the time. I think being an athlete, and, and there's so many athletes in orthopedics, and I think it's not just that we take care of athletes as orthopedic surgeons. I think there's also, there's a discipline, there's a time management to it. There's sort of just like an understanding of being able to do athletics at the same time as you're going to school. Learning how to kind of run two worlds at the same time is very much uh, a, a good training to be a surgeon where you learn to run your clinical practice. You learn to run your business side of your practice. You learn to, if you're like you and spend a lot of time doing education and a lot of time doing outreach, you kind of learn to balance all of those things in life. And I think athletics is just a great training to do that. And so you know, my wife is a super, super successful attorney, also an elite level gymnast. Same thing. I think professionals who were athletes at high levels have a little bit of an advantage when it comes to just understanding how to, how to make the life work. Yeah. It's about organization, right? I mean, like there's not enough time in the day. So if you're going to be competing at the highest levels, you still want to do well in school. 
So you're carving out, you know, time for everything. You're able to be organized. I, I don't believe in multitasking. I think people, you know, you get one thing done and then you move on to the next. But the point being, you're absolutely right. When you're organized at the highest level and you're used to competition and winning, right, which is what you're really wanting to do, having all of that sort of background behind you. And it's like a classic example. Like I come on, I'm five minutes early coming on to the show today. And there's Dr. Michael Ast, who's on there five minutes before me. There is no such thing as being late. You're either early or you're on time. And that's how you manage your life, right? That's exactly right. I even tell my kids, I and mean, my kids are five and seven years old, I tell them 15 minutes early is on time. On time is late and late is unacceptable. It's yeah. just not something that we're going to do. <laughs> so, so, dude, you're just like, you're preaching to the choir. I absolutely love it. So so you're at Temple, you know, you, you had all these injuries. And, and I mean, are you like dialed in while you're there? You're thinking like, I really like this orthopedic thing. I want to go to medical school and I want to be an orthopedic surgeon or was it not quite there yet? Yeah, no, actually. So I got accepted to medical school out of high school. So I did one of those combined uh, seven year programs and my the, literally the application. And, and I actually had forgotten this story until when I matched into orthopedic residency, the director of that program at Temple came and gave me my personal statement. I wrote it when I was 16 years old and it said, I want to go to medical school to be an orthopedic surgeon. Like it wasn't, there was no other reason I was going to medical school. That was it. And he showed it to me and I, I, I still remember, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even remember writing this, but it was absolutely true. So yeah, that, that was, that was the reason to be a doctor. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's so weird. We're two peas in a pod here, dude. I mean, I was the same way. I injured myself in 10th grade and I was just like, you know something you know, I was doing lacrosse and football and I was doing well in school. I'm like, what a great thing. I want to be a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon in 10th grade. And just put my nose to the grindstone and, you know, here we are and, and we've accomplished that goal. And so, you know, that's a great, great story. You know, you're 16 years old writing a letter and they saved that letter for you too. I really like that. That yeah, was, was cool. Classic. And, and, and he was a great guy, a really great mentor, really great help guide me, you know, cause it's not easy balancing college and trying to go to med school because the life of college and the life of going to med school, you know, I remember studying for the MCATs on an airplane. So we were flying somewhere and I'm on air and I'm in, and I'm in the seat and I'm studying, you know, out of the MCAT book. And next to me is my, my teammate who's studying one of those, you know, adult magazines. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'm like, huh, I, I feel like we're, we're on different paths right now. Like something's, something's happening, but, uh, but you know, it just, it, again, it kind of comes down to, you, you have a draw, you have a goal, you have a drive, you have something you want to do. And whether that's in sports, whether that's in school, whether that's in anything in life, you sort of, you aim in that direction. You keep fighting as much as you can. And hopefully you get lucky like you and I did. And we end up having the greatest job in the world. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. You know, my junior year, I'll, I know this is your story, but my junior year, I took off instead of going down to, to, to spring break with the lacrosse team. I really studied for the MCATs and I took the time off. And uh, and, and it was funny because the season before they gave me the MUJP award, uh, which is the most useless Jewish player award. So I didn't feel guilty taking a season off, but, you know, uh, but no, you're right. But, you know, working hard and getting to a spot and being able to do the things that you want to do, setting goals for yourself and being able to accomplish those goals, especially in such an amazing career that we have. It's really awesome. So you go, you're a temple medical school, you do your thing. And then it's uh, it's off to residency in Long Island. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, at the time I actually was going to stay in Philly. I loved the program at Temple and the Temple Orthopedics program was a fantastic program, really great residency program. But my mom actually had gotten sick at the time and she was being treated back in New York. And again, because I'm from New York and I said, you know what, let me see if there was a place in New York, uh, take a look and, and see and leaving Philly. And so I, I left Philly and came back and trained in Long Island. And it was a just a great experience. You know, the, the, the group out there, the, the attendings 
who dedicate so much time to teach at LIJ. And that's all a voluntary program at that time. Now they've got a faculty and everything. At that time, that was almost entirely a voluntary program, just community orthopedic surgeons doing great work and spending a ton of time teaching. It was just, it was a really, really wonderful experience. All right. So, so I'm a little confused though. You're at Long Island Jewish. You're working with these great mentors and private practice docs that are, are donating their time and energy to you to be able to train you. And I, you know, I'm thinking you're, you're going to Curlin Job or you're going to go to Rush and you're going to do a sports medicine fellowship. What's going on with this whole joint reconstruction thing? Where did that left hand turn take you? I just, you know, it, it's one of those things. The only things I've ever changed in my career is my decision from going to sports in, instead and going into joints. Because I always, just like you, wanted to take care of athletes, wanted to be a sports doc. And, you know, I just, I think I enjoyed the actual surgery of joint replacement better. I really liked just the, the, the tools we were using, the, the thought process that goes into it. And, you know, having to do a knee and a shoulder, I don't understand that. Like, I, I, I need to stick, to stick to, there's like seven different surgeries for the shoulder. How do you remember all seven? I do one on the knee and one on the hip and I'm good. Like, and then that's it. It just keeps my life simple. Yeah, as Paul Favorito would say, you're only willing to operate on the inferior extremity. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I think there is something very soothing uh, to being able to do an operation, you know, really well uh, and, and being able to do it routinely and repetitively and have, you know, terrific outcomes. And that's really what, you know, joint replacement is. I mean, I think in the sports world, you know, we're changing out anchors left and right just by a whim, you know, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try that. But you, you blue coat, you blue sport coat, khaki pants, AUKUS guys, you know, you know, you look to change things by like 0.1%, you know, you will, or maybe take two minutes off of the operation or, you know, that's how you guys think in these really specific details, which is awesome because, you know, there's, there's complications associated with joint replacement and the things that happen and trying to minimize those as much as you can and get great outcomes. So, so you decide, okay, joint replacement's what, gonna, what you're going to do. And now you're going to go for it, right? You're going to go to the Mecca. You're going to try and get into HSS and do your fellowship. Let's just talk a little bit about that because I think you have a great influence on a lot of the younger orthopedic surgeons. I think you have a great following. What was the process of, of getting to the point of being able to get a fellowship at HSS for joint replacement? How difficult, the cons, just the whole thing. Talk, walk us through that. Yeah, you know, I mean like everything else, right? You, you try to, to do whatever you think is going to be best for you in the future. And HSS is not always the best for every single person. Maybe some people, one of the other fantastic fellowships is better for them, for their family, for whatever it is. That was where I thought that I'd get the best training. I'd get the best opportunities uh, for the future. And so I spoke with mentors of mine, you know, there were, there's not being in Long Island, it's not that far away from, from the city. There were a lot of my mentors who trained at HSS as residents and stuff. And so use that to get some connections. I'd also had some experience with some of the people at HSS throughout the years, either through research or when I was a medical student, I came up and spent a little time. And so tried to just meet as many people as I can. And I think one of the things we all get very intimidated by everybody, right? Meeting Scott Sigmund for me was a big deal. And this was, you know, a year ago, I'd, I'd have been in practice for nine years. Um, but, you know, it, we, we forget like how great all the people we work around are. And so tr what I tried to do is get to some conferences and go to some meetings and maybe meet some of the people. And I met Dave Maiman and I met Steve Haas and I worked with some of these 
And, and it just became sort of like a name they had heard of, a name they knew. So when I showed up on interview day, it wasn't the first time they'd ever seen me. And I think there's a lot to be said for spending a little time as a resident, especially if you have a goal and you sort of know the pathway you're trying to take with meeting some people, making some friends, doing some outreach. And even if it's just a, hi, how you doing? My name is so-and-so. And I really, you know, just really happy to meet you. Really, I think it's really cool what you did with X, Y, and Z. And just so that you, you can get to meet some of these people and get involved in some networking. I think as physicians, we don't market well, we don't brand well, we don't network well. We sort of, our type A personalities make us think, well, that person is like me and they're not going to want to meet me or I'm not going to want to meet them or they're going to think I stink or our imposter syndrome comes up. And that's the worst part about us all. Our imposter syndrome is worse than our egos. And it says, oh my gosh, if I meet them, they're finally going to be the one who tells me, what the heck are you doing talking to me? Who do you think you are, right? Because we all are afraid that that's going to happen every single day, at least the vast majority of us. And so I think getting beyond that and learning to network and learning to to expand out beyond the people you know right now to the people that would be so great to know for the future is just something we have to practice and get better at and be comfortable with because that that's the key, right? That's the key in not only expanding our patient population, expanding our, our opportunities, but it's also expanding our, our, our mindsets and our lives outside of just, a, I go to the OR and I do this surgery and then I go home as opposed to what it's going to take for physicians like you and, and the rest out there to, to change healthcare and to fix the way things are going. Yeah, no. So what I'm hearing out of that, which, which I really completely respect and agree is, is that, you know, life's all about relationships. Don't be afraid to make relationships and go up and introduce yourself and meet people because the overwhelming majority of people, you may go up and meet the most famous orthopedic surgeon on the planet. And if you go up with a smile and you make a connection more often than not, they're going to shake your hand and they're going to be really appreciative that you took the time out to do that. So really great advice about building relationships, working with your mentors, and, and just don't wait to the end to just send in your application, but do a lot of behind the scenes things to really be able to elevate your game. And so I'm going to do this right now on, on our, our show, but Matthew Ray Scott and I are developing an on-demand online physician brand RX class where we're going to really help docs to sort of identify what is your brand? What is your message? How do you get the patients in the room that want to come and see Dr. Michael Ast, not just go to HSS, but they want to go and see Dr. Michael Ast? And I'm asking you right now, dude, you, we want you to be a special guest star in, in, involved in this podcast, specifically to help doctors sort of develop the idea of relationships and, and be able to sort of move into this academic space. Are you in? You're going to join us? Absolutely. Happy to do it. I, 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 that's such a great thing. I'm so glad you guys are doing that. I think it's really, really great. I think that's, you know, you hear about it now more than you ever did in the past, but that's what we all need to do a better job of starting to understand the other side of the world here, the business side of the world, the leadership side of the world. That's where physicians can start to take back control. And so I'm, I'm super pumped you guys are doing it. I would absolutely be happy to be there. All right. Fantastic. The beard is writing down notes with Heather right now. So you are in brother. All right. So we go to HSS and I'm sure your experience there for the year was phenomenal working with some of the iconic uh, awesome. leaders in arthroplasty. You got to give us some shout outs. Tell us about your mentors from your your year at HSS in, in fellowship. Oh man. I mean, it's, it's literally everyone I walked into every time you walk down the hall, they used to joke. I always felt like a bobblehead doll walking down the hallway, just so excited to look in every room and see, but getting to work with Chit Ranawat, with Russ Windsor, with Eduardo Salvati, with Alejandro Del Valle, with Tom Skulko, with 
Steve Haas, Matias Bostrom, Doug Padgett. I mean, the list just goes on and on. You almost can't, like, you're afraid you leave out a name. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how great they were. You know, and people that some people don't even recognize how great they are to fellas. Amar Ranawat, you know, he doesn't always have the biggest smile on his face, but he won the Teacher of the Year Award our year. He was, he's amazing amazing the operating room but to, and again just to sit with chit ranawat every single monday and listen to where did orthopedics come from what was the first joint the knee replacement the first knee replacement ever done in the world like how did it go that day what was yeah i mean just it, it was it's like even looking back now i'm like amazed i had that opportunity and just so so lucky to have dealt and with and learn from so many amazing people well, your your energy is uh, is absolutely uh, palpable, and I love 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 listening to you. So, all right, so you're at HSS, you do your arthroplasty fellowship, and now it's time to set up practice. Go ahead, tell us where so, you. Went. Yeah, so so again, kind of like what you were talking about earlier. You know, my my path until that time was all by private practice surgeons explaining kind of what that world was like, understanding. My wife and I had been living in the city. She worked in Manhattan, a big law firm. And we're like, you know what? Let's just change it up. Let's go back a little closer to her family's house, her parents, which who are from Philly. And so we went down and we, we, uh, jo- I joined a practice which kind of spanned the border between Princeton, New Jersey and Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We lived on a five acre farm in Pennsylvania. Beautiful place. It's amazingly gorgeous. One of the most beautiful parts of the country. I've been to New Hope, Pennsylvania. Really, really incredible, incredible town. Um, and we lived there. I worked at a bunch of hospitals in a practice called Mercer Bucks Orthopedics. Great group of surgeons really good group of people and actually became one of the most interesting parts of my career because I worked with my, my most senior partner who became a very, very important mentor, a guy named Dave Eingorn and our, our group CEO, a guy named Tony Mulchaney, very, very interesting guy was the CFO of a big health system for a while, then kind of took a step down, tried to slow down his life a little bit, took over our practice. And I learned more about business, about running practices, about running surgery centers, about building surgery centers. That's where we built our outpatient joint replacement program. And all of these things that, that led the way that interestingly ended up getting me back to New York. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. Cause it's interesting. I mean, you know, some people will just go like at the top flight, you know, fellowship, and then they've got to try and find a top flight academic job, you know, and then you sit around like, you know, I think like if I, if, you know, if you're at Rothman, for example, and you're starting in, you finished your shoulder fellowship and you're going to go and join the Rothman faculty. I mean, I can name, you know, 10 world renowned shoulder specialists at Rothman. So how are you going to get busy if you're, you know, fresh out of school? Do you sit back and wait? Do you hope that people are going to send your patients passively? So no, instead, what you do is you leave and you say, okay, I'm going to take all the skill sets that I've developed and I'm going to go someplace and be a big shot. And I'm going to hit the ground running and I'm going to develop a really busy practice early on and do all the cool stuff that I want to do. And so that must have been a really tremendously awesome five years for you, fresh out of fellowship to be able to build a practice like this. And it was an amazing experience, right? Because all of those things that we were just talking about that we don't know how to do, you have to figure out, right? You have to learn. You went and you learn from mentors in the community saying, actually, this is how you build a practice. Let's go out. Let's meet primary care doctors. Let's meet referral providers. Let's go meet physical therapists. Let's go talk to everyone at the hospital because guess what? When you're in your first year of practice, you're not that busy. You got a lot of free time. So your options are you can sit at home and do stuff. And sometimes you should do that, right? When you're busy in your first, when you're not so busy in your first couple of years, enjoy it, spend time with your family, do those things. But then the rest of the time, understand and learn how to build a practice. And so that's what I did. And I met the, met everyone I could. I talked to anyone who would listen to me. That, that's I, talked, I felt like a pharmaceutical rep. 
shocking to me that people would want to talk to you and that you'd be comfortable talking to people. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I mean, like, dude, it's like you're just you're infectious. Of course, everybody wants to talk to you and enjoy it and do the stuff that you're doing. But, but it was weird. It was weird because there, there was no training to do it. Right. I'd never given right. a talk to a primary care doctor. I didn't even exactly know what they would want to hear. So I just asked them. I said, hey, let's let's go to dinner. Uh, what what do you want to talk about? They're like, oh, well, what do you do for a living? I'm a knee replacement surgeon. Let's talk about that. And you're like, just get into these conversations. You try to find out how to keep them interesting. And all of a sudden they send you a patient and they do well. So they send you another patient. And then that patient sends you a patient and the doctor sends you another patient. And you realize that all of a sudden this is how it happens, right? If you're at HSS, they call and they go to anybody who's at HSS. When you're in the when you're in a in a community practice, it takes a little effort to build. But once you do, number one, you take a huge amount of pride in understanding, well, I actually built something cool here. This was amazing. But number two, you learn a skill set, right? It's a different skill set. And that skill set has applications broadly beyond just getting more patients into the office. Yeah. And I think the social that social media has become a great equalizer too. You know, the concept again, I mean, I go back to this sort of the passive role of sitting back and waiting for your your practice to develop over 10 years you know you can you can send messaging you can develop a brand you can you know talk to people and let your patients do the talking for you too and they all you know they go to church they go to work or whatever it may be and 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 then you sort of build your practice that way where the patients are actually wanting to come to you so you know i think that you know that's a really great message for our listeners here as people are trying to identify a path of how they're going to want to build success whether you're fresh out of practice or whether you've been somewhere for 10 years and working on, you know, how you can make your practice even better. So all of those things are, are, are totally awesome. So, so let's fast track. It's 2018. You're at the triple a ball game here, you know, down at uh, Robert Wood Johnson and the big leagues call you up and HSS says, you know, Hey, we're ready for you. You want to come back home. Tell us that story. Did they, did they reach out to you? Did you maintain that relationship? How did you make the decision to go back to the big city? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'd always maintained the relationship. I had stayed uh, in in touch. I'd still been doing some industry work with some of, with some of my mentors from HSS. Uh, I'd been going to their, you know, they have a a, a, knee, a hip and knee course around the holidays every year. I'd stayed on the faculty there, especially once I started getting into the outpatient joint replacement world. When I started doing uh, joints in our ASC in 2014, um, and HSS really wasn't doing a lot of that, it gave me a little bit of perspective to be able to come back. And then I'd give some talks on like doing revision surgery in smaller hospitals and the perspective there. So that kind of kept me involved a little bit. And then the very funny story, which everyone at HSS knows is when they actually asked me to come back, I thought they were kidding. Um, so we were, we were at AUKUS. It's, it's the uh, alumni, you know, gathering at AUKUS every year. And so we're sitting there and I'm having a glass of wine with, with, uh, with Doug Paget. And he says, so, you know, so what's it going to take to get you back? And, and Doug's kind of a funny guy and his, you know, uh, you don't always know if he's kidding, not kidding, like whatever. And so I, I made a joke and I moved on and other people joined and then the, the party just moved on. And I, I kind of blew it off because I, I genuinely thought he was kidding. And about a month and a half later, Dave Maiman comes, he goes, Mike, what are you doing? Doug's waiting for your answer. <laughs> and I'm like, to what? <laughs> and, 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 and after that, it's easy, right? Like it, it's very hard to say no to that offer when that offer is real. And so it, there wasn't a whole lot to it after that. It's all right, go talk with my family, talk with my wife and say, hey, guess what? We're moving back to New York. Yeah, you get called up to the big leagues. How could you say no for sure? So, so you come back up. So talk to us about that a little bit before. I want to talk also about, you know, last December when you got named as the chief medical innovation officer. But, you know, did, did, were, were you set up for success? You know, you're, you're, you've built, you've been working really hard for five years 
and you develop an ASC program, you're developing an awesome name and reputation within your community. You really have a, a you know a flourishing practice, and then you head up to the big leagues. And, and do they set you up for success? Is it taking some time to get going? What's it been like? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. It's very different, right? You go from being, I always considered myself a medium to large fish in a relatively small to medium pond where I was, because there are some parts are pretty big. Some of my hospitals are were really, really small. I was the only joint replacement surgeon there. Some of them was a little different, but, you know, then you come to be a teeny, teeny, tiny, almost indistinguishable fish in the <laughs> largest pond in the universe, right? It's like, so, so I think it's, it's definitely very different, but at the same time, I mean, the, the place is built for success that the, 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 colleagues I have here are just incredible. From the moment I got here, they were referring me patients, the hospital was helping me build. It didn't, it did not take very long to get busy again. And I think it was helpful because at the time I came right around when they were starting their ambulatory joint program. And I was able to help with that, which was nice. I felt like I was actually providing something back to this huge organization. I was just so lucky to be a part of um, and, and I think that, that that really helped me build and that has maintained a little bit of my patient population. And the other nice thing is uh, uh, we do have an office in New Jersey. So half my practice was in Princeton originally. We still have an office about an hour north of there, but I still get a lot of my old patients will still come up and see me. My old PA for my old practice will treat them conservatively until they're ready for surgery and send them up to me and they'll come to New York for surgery. It's, a, it's pretty wild and really wonderful. But uh, again, I'm just super, super lucky with the whole system. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, you know, 2014 for the listeners was, was, was early for outpatient arthroplasty. I mean, you know, we, we joke around, you know, Boston's the same way. You know, there's still not a lot of outpatient arthroplasty being performed in Boston. They're starting to now move out to the ASCs. But so that was really, you know, innovative, okay, as we move and segue into the next conversation. So, so you know, it's December of this uh, past year. You get named to be the chief medical innovation officer. Uh, innovations warm, warm and dear to my heart. We love that on the Ortho Show. We love entrepreneurs, and you know, innovation can be it can be technique driven, right? It could be research, it could be education, it could be medical device design. I mean, there's innovation can be in so many different spaces. So, so tell us about the role. And did, were you the first? Was this made for you? Was it designed for you? And and everything about it because it really sound, sounds kind of cool. Yeah, you know, it, it's really amazing. And again, I think. You're exactly right. Innovation isn't one thing. There's a lot of things you can innovate on. I'm not the first one. This is I'm the I'm the third uh, surgeon to be sort of running or partnering to run our Innovation Institute at HSS, which has been around for a very long time. And you could throw a nickel down the hallway in HSS and hit ten people who've invented more things than I have. Right? HSS has been de- developing and designing whether it's techniques or implants or things for a really really long time. And I really think the reason that I was sort of lucky enough to fall into this role came more from the business and entrepreneurship side than it did from my own individual innovation. I'm probably not anymore and potentially even a little less innovative than some of my colleagues who continue to develop, you know, Steve Haas develops a new knee replacement every three weeks. I it's, you know, there are some people here who are just really, really unbelievable. Um, but the, the unique experience that I had was running a business, starting new businesses. You know, in my first practice, we had our ASC company. Then we built an ASC holding company. Then we built an ASC management company. Then we built a, building, a billing company. And I, ran, I helped launch and run each one of those while we were there. And again, with great help, with help from my partners, Keith Cravello and Dave Eingorn, like I wasn't doing this by myself, but I got to watch these processes as they happened. And that gave me a lot of insight into sort of how to help drive surgeon innovation and help the surgeons 
succeed in trying to take an innovation from the back of a napkin to our innovation institute out to it. And then the other big advantage that I have in this world is that my wife is an attorney who specializes in orthopedics. So I know what contracts should look like. I know when someone's getting a good deal and a bad deal because I just ask her and she tells me. And (laughs) so like these kind of things have helped me in helping surgeons understand what's available out there, deal with industry, deal with the hospital, deal with themselves, make sure they're getting a good deal, understand patent law and things like this. And so I think it was really that more than anything that that allowed me to come into this role. And, And my hope is that what we can accomplish here is help surgeons who almost by nature are all innovative, harness what they've got inside and figure out how they can get that out there to make patients' lives better. Because we always say at innovation, right? At HSS, innovation isn't for the sake of innovation. It's for the sake of driving the mission of the organization. So HSS's mission is clinical excellence, research, education, innovation. But the innovation is there to make clinical excellence better, to make education better, to make research better, right? Not just to innovate because there's, it'd be great to have another doohickey, right? Like, we really want to make sure that we can harness the, the incredible talent and intelligence and, and innovative thinking of the surgeons and not and the non-surgeons, right? So many of our nursing team, some of our surgical staff team all have these great ideas to make patient care better, to make education better. And that's what we want to help them do. And that's the goal of our Innovation Institute. It sounds very much like uh, what, what Jay Parvizi is doing down at Rothman as well with Serena Nandari and the crew down there. And so it's just, it's just awesome to be able to help and assist, right? You may have this great idea, but, but how do you get it across the finish line? And most of the large medical device companies aren't interested in R&D anymore. They want everybody to build it up, identify it, and then they'll bring it into the fold right. when, it's, when it's matured and ready to, to go. When it's FDA cleared, right? Once they're through the FDA, they'll be happy yeah. to buy it. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, so is it, is it just for, eight, for, for hospital special surgery, for docs and residents and interns? I mean, how do people become a part and bring ideas to the HSS Innovation Center? Yeah, so it's actually, we love to call it the inside out and the outside in and both, uh, and we do both all the time. So we have a lot of homegrown innovation. And again, whether that's a new device, whether that's a new way of providing care, whether it's a new surgical technique, a new algorithm for treatment, whatever it is, that will help build from the bottom up. You know, somebody comes with an idea, will help them through the patent process, help them through understanding what's protectable, help them develop it, design it, build it, prototype it, and then release it out to the world. Or the exact opposite. Someone from the outside comes with a really good idea or just a request says, hey, I would love to see if HSS could help me do this. I want to trial X, Y, or Z. And we will say, great. Yes, we can build a business development plan. We can decide how we can work together for data sharing, for development, for, for whatever it is. And then we can bring it to our research team, to our biomechanics team, to our gate lab analysis team, whatever that may be. And we've got really great examples on both sides of that, um, that, that have worked extraordinarily well, right? Our 3D printing center, we have the world's only in-house 3D printing center for implants, which is a partnership with Lima. They came to us, said, we'd really like to do this, partner with a biomechanics department, partner with all of, with our, you know, our basic science research on bone ingrowth and all of these different things to create custom implants for the most complicated orthopedic, uh, reconstructive, uh, surgeries, and that can be from HSS or from outside of HSS, doesn't really matter, to, you know, the recent release of our, of uh, Scott Wolf's newest uh, wrist replacement implant. 
Again, wrist replacements, one of those things that there aren't a lot of in the old and the prior implants weren't that great. He had a great idea. We take it from start to finish and release it out. And it's be, it's out being sold right now. So, so both of those work really, really well. It just sounds to me like you've put together just an amazing center of resources, you know, bringing, you know, great minds together, right? You need, you need John Glenn's and test pilots, but you need engineers to be able to build the thing too. And when you can sort of work together and then having the business side of it and being able to help with attorney review and all of those things really, you know, really is is really tremendous um, uh, situation. I really commend you and HSS for, for putting that together. So, you know, we're getting, we're getting close here, Mike. I mean, I think I could talk to you for another hour and a half. I think we're gonna have to give you another episode, but, but, you know, if you were going to give some advice to our listeners out there who are, who are thinking about innovation in particular, you know, in a few minutes, just sort of describe a, a reasonable path to be able to try and identify who you should partner with, where you can get help, where are the resources and what you have to offer. Yeah, you know, I think it, it all comes down to exactly what type of innovation you're doing and what information you're going to need to take that innovation from start to finish. So if you think, gosh, all I need are a couple patients, or I just have this great idea on the back of a napkin. First thing you do, snap a cell phone picture of that back of the napkin, right? Cell phone pictures are, are time-stamped. So if you ever, ever end up in court on who came up with the idea first, you'll have a timestamp of exactly that you came up with that idea first in case you ever get into something weird. Um, but once you've got your idea... And let's say it's a device or let's say something like that, you're going to have to find a way to either build a prototype or go through that. So you need to partner with some biomechanics, engineer, whatever it is, either find one, you know, and trust, or you can consider working with some of the big device companies. Some of them will still do some of this early or go to J Parvizi's group, go to the HSS Innovation Institute, go to Stanford has an incredible innovation center out in California. If you're on the West coast, a lot of these different opportunities exist where surgeons, especially surgeons, but even anyone within the industry can find a partner that they can trust and say, okay, we're going to help you get through this process. We're going to kind of walk you through it. And sometimes it comes down to if the idea is good enough, you just do it yourself. You say, look, some, I got to take some money on the side. I've got my patent attorney that I found. I'm going to hire a patent attorney. I'm going to develop a prototype and 3D print it somewhere because now that's that's getting a lot less expensive. And we're going to try it out and see. And I've seen people innovate like that too. There's no one right way to do it. If you need a lot of data, if it's an algorithm, if it's some computer process, if it's a machine learning thing, then you're going to need a partner who's got access to a lot of de-identified data, which exists out there. But you just got to think through what you're going to need to get to that finish line and then try to use as little help as possible so that you own as much of it as you can when you finish. Yeah, no, really just amazing sound, you know, great advice. We, we didn't even touch upon your love and passion for education. I mean, you know what, I, I just... Uh, I, I, I see myself in the mirror as we're, we're talking here, Michael. I mean, whether it's an, a, you're an exquisite you know, orthopedic surgeon caring for patients clinically, operating on being a healer, you're an educator, you're clearly have an amazing passion for, for innovation, uh, you're, you're, you know, your personality is infectious. I mean, I, you know, we have a lot of guests here on the Ortho Show in a lot of different places, but I think uh, there's no question in my mind you're going to be one of the great leaders in arthroplasty uh, if you aren't already. And it's really been an amazing pleasure to have you on the show. It's absolutely my pleasure. And thank you for doing what you're doing. You're, you know, what, what the whole world of social media and podcasts, and it's really 
democratized the opportunity for people to get information. And I think people overlook that in those who are skeptical of social media or are annoyed by seeing people around too much. Or I, I, I think they're getting it totally backwards. The democratization of the access to this information is one of the most important things we can do to move our field, not just of orthopedics, but of healthcare forward. And whether it's through virtual reality teaching to democratize access to surgical training, or, or even something that, quote, is as simple as the ortho show, where you're giving an opportunity for people like me to speak to audiences I'd never get to, or giving audiences opportunities to listen to Antonia Chen talk about research, right? This type of democratization is what will maintain the quality of care necessary to continue to provide high-level healthcare to the future. So I, I commend you and all of the people who do what you do and things that you do, because it's just, it's absolutely what this future needs. We need physicians in leadership positions. We need to learn about business. We need to democratize access to education. And if we do those three things, we're going to be just fine. This is what we love about the Ortho Show, the passionate, amazing guests that tell their unique and really remarkable stories. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.